Hello, this is Lars Schall and I'm now connected to Sydney in Australia with Steve Keen, who is a professor for economics and finance at the University of Western Sydney. And because Mr. Keen was awarded with the Revere Award from the Real World Economics Review for warning of the crisis we're in, I would like to talk with him about the causes of the crisis. Hello, Steve. How are you? Very well, Lars. Is it fine to talk with you about the crisis, or are you already a bit tired of the topic? Well, I, when I saw this was coming back in December of 2005, I knew that my life would be defined by talking about it for some years. So whether I'm tired of it or not, I know that it's what I've got to discuss. What would you say is this actually? What kind of a crisis is this actually we're in? It's a depression. It's not a recession. And this is one of the major mistakes that conventional economists are making and trying to understand it as like an extended recession. There is no formal definition of a depression, but I think one should be devised now that we're uh, going through a, a second one where we can actually identify the real causes. And fundamentally, a depression is a prolonged economic downturn caused by a transition in the growth of credit from expanding credit to contracting credit. That is yeah. fundamentally the cause. And that always is preceded by a, a debt bubble where expanding debt generated too much of the aggregate demand, financing mainly speculation rather than production. So we've gone from a, a credit fueled boom, which was the period from particularly from 1993 to 2007 in America, but you can date it uh, going back much earlier than that, and yeah. to a debt, a debt induced downturn that began in 2008. Yeah, we hear a lot about that um, the sovereign debt situation is part of the crisis. Is this the logical outcome of our monetary system? It's uh, In a sense it is, because the crisis was not caused by public debt, it was caused by exploding private debt. In fact, in most of the Western world, prior to the crisis starting, public debt was falling as a percentage of GDP, which made economists think they were successfully controlling the world, because... For some reason, well, I know why, but neoclassical economists obsess about the level of public debt and believe it should be driven down towards zero, whereas they ignore private debt. So there was rising private debt in the period, particularly from the, the post-1987 stock market crash all the way through to uh, the crisis in 2008, 2009, but falling public debt. Now, when the crisis hits, the public sector suddenly finds two things happen, whether, whether it actually tries to do anything active about the crisis or not. Its tax revenues decline and its welfare expenditures rise. And to fund that, it necessarily goes into deficit, so its debt levels rise. So in that sense, it is a necessary consequence of our system that the sovereign debt levels rise right now. But the, the real cause of the, whole, of the whole explosion was the rise and then collapse in private debt. What has led to the biggest financial bubble of all time, as you call it? Isn't this also an aspect of private debt? Oh, it is entirely. I mean, that the, the scale of the debt we've got into now dwarfs the level of debt that America got into prior to the Great Depression. And we don't really have reliable data going back past uh, the early 1900s in America, but I've got data going back to 1860 in Australia. And the previous bubble in Australia before the Great Depression was in the 1890s. And the level of debt Australia is in, in private sector debt is now twice the level it had back in 1890. So I think I'm quite confident in saying the level of private debt that exists at the moment uh, created in the West by the banking sector, effectively funding what really were Ponzi schemes rather than productive investment. That level of debt probably has never been, never been exceeded in human history.
traditional economical views also responsible for the crisis? Yes, because traditional economics, first of all, told students, told, told uh, academics and policymakers to ignore the level of private debt. And they're still doing it. I find it quite remarkable to read people like Krugman and Bernanke even now being perplexed about what caused the crisis and why it's lasting so long, but confidently assuring people they shouldn't worry about the level of private debt on the basis of uh, saying that the debt is simply money we owe to ourselves. That's a direct quote from one of Krugman's most recent blog entries. And, and yet, if you look at the empirical data, the thing which, had, which rose before the crisis occurred was the level of private debt. The thing which is plunging now is the level of private debt. Even looking at the empirical data without a theory, you'd have to say, there's something we should take a careful look at here, but they continue ignoring the level of private debt. And that is built into the way they think about the economy, where they ignore, fundamentally, the role of money in a capitalist economy. And because they ignore that, they blindsided as to what caused the crisis. So in a fundamental way, they let the crisis develop and go on for far longer than it would have done had we had realistic economics rather than the mythical thing called neoclassical economics. And why do you think they have a blind spot related to money? Isn't money the thing that makes all things go round? Yeah, this is the classic story of money makes the world go round, the song we all sing. But yeah. people stop singing it when they do an economics degree. Because they, they, they walk into one of their very first classes and the professor says, imagine that I, you have a money income of 100 euros per week and prices are as they are now and I double your income to... $200, 200 euros per week, and all prices also double, what happens to the amount you consume? And the students go through the exercise and say, well, sir, nothing changes. And the, the, the president says, exactly. Therefore, the level of money, nominal level of money, is irrelevant. What matters is relative prices and real levels of output, not absolute prices and monetary, monetary prices and monetary levels of output. And that is fundamentally wrong. It's fundamentally wrong because we live in a credit-driven economy not one in which money is like a little token we shuffle between each other. And where the credit system can expand the level of uh, demand in the economy by expanding the level of debt. And, of course, if you actually are in debt and you do that mental exercise and you remember that you owe money as well as having cash uh, in, in the bank, you also have a, an obligation to pay uh, interest on an outstanding debt, you would answer the question of the professor, no, professor, I'm actually better off courtesy of the inflation because my debt levels have remained constant, but everything else has gone up, so I have less of a debt burden, I'm now better off. Now, the professor would fail you for making that statement, certainly in a multiple-choice exam they would, but the reality is you'd be right and the professor would be wrong. This vision of capitalism as a non-monetary economy is at the core of why economics failed to see this crisis coming and also why they why the crisis became worse than it would have been without their intervention because throughout they were telling people not to worry about the level of private debt. A lot of people blame Keynesianism for the crisis. Do you agree? And furthermore, isn't Keynesianism perfectly possible without the theories of John Maynard Keynes? What they call Keynesianism and what Keynes actually wrote about are two virtually diametrically opposed things. I have my own criticisms of some aspects of Keynes's theories uh, and the completeness of those theories, but they are completely at odds at what people think is Keynesian. And the, the best instance of this is the belief that people like Paul Krugman have, um, and also critics of Keynes have, that what's called the ISLM model is Keynes's economics. Now, if you read John Hicks carefully, you'll find the ISLM model was first, uh, first publicised in a paper by John Hicks in 1937, which was supposed to be a review of the general theory. And then writing in 1981, 
he pointed out that the model he actually put forward as a review of Keynes in 1937, he had first dreamt up in 1934, before he'd read, quote-unquote, even the first of my works on Keynes was written. So what they call Keynesian economics is actually Hicksian economics, and Hicksian economics is derives directly from uh, Leon Volras's ideas of general equilibrium. So what people criticise, what they call Keynes, are actually criticising neoclassical economics. Now, I'm quite on, on side with them about that, but of course they're ignorant uh, in the sense that they're attributing those theories to the wrong person. And there are also ways in which the attack on Keynesian economics is an attack on having any government spending in an economy at all. Because if you do have a government sector, and there is, there's yet to be a capitalist economy without a government sector, then that government sector's revenues depend upon tax incomes, and its expenditures depend upon the, the uh, level of welfare, or the level of provision it has to make for welfare. So automatically you have a Keynesian, in the sense that critics mean it, automatic stabilizer built into the economy. It's a natural consequence of having a government sector as well as a private sector. And people who are criticising it now and saying it's failed and it caused the crisis, etc., etc., it wasn't that automatic stabiliser side of government expenditure that caused the crisis, but certainly it kicking in meant that even though it had a bigger financial shock than back in the 1930s, the scale of the downturn has been less than the 1930s. Now, I can make this empirical comparison. If you look at uh, when the crisis began in 1930, the level of private debt, the growth of private debt, was adding about 8% to aggregate demand before the crisis began. At its peak, it was reducing aggregate demand by about 25%. We've had a more extreme range. We went from, from rising private debt, adding about 22% to demand above and beyond uh, income, GDP, down to 26%, reduction of 26% in the level of aggregate demand below GDP. Despite that, the fall in unemployment, the rise, the rise in unemployment with this particular crisis has been nowhere near as extreme as back in the 1930s. So there's one of, one of many reasons to say that empirically, the automatic stabiliser aspect of what people call Keynesian economics has made this less of a severe crisis than we would have had otherwise. Why do you think um, a lot of people have uh, difficulties to compare our times with the Great Depression? We have a very, very, economics is a very, very poor discipline. And if you looked at how science might compare, uh, say, an earthquake in 1930 to an earthquake in 2007, the only thing which would let them down would be the quality of the data they had collected from the 1930s. But economics has actually gone backwards in many ways in its understanding of the, how the economy operates and has an utterly simplistic view of the functioning of the economy. And most economists don't even learn history. They don't even know the 1930s happened. So you, you don't have that capacity to build on this, the shoulders of giants as you do in science. In one of my articles for Physica A, I actually describe economists as not standing on the shoulders of giants, but standing on the toes of pygmies. And for that reason, we're, we're far worse off in trying to understand past economic phenomena than physicists would be in trying to understand past, uh, past physical events. Uh, since when did you warn about the coming crisis we are now in? first actual warning I made in the media was actually in December of 2005. And the first published document I have, or it was a certified document to say that I was warning of a recession, was printed in January of 2006. It was an expert witness a report I wrote for a court case about predatory lending in Australia. And from that stage on, I was warning about the crisis as best I could. I'm not quite certain of the date in which I set up the website debtdeflation.com, but I think the fact that I chose debtdeflation.com as a website back in 2006 or thereabouts shows that I was warning of the crisis from that stage on. 
I made my first hypothetical warning of a potential crisis back when I wrote my PhD thesis, and I published the first paper from that in 1995 in the Journal of Post-Keynesian Economics, when I built a mathematical model of Minsky's financial instability hypothesis. And one phenomenon in that model, which I didn't, it was what you might call an emergent property of the model. I didn't know why it happened when I first put the model together. I subsequently analyzed it and worked out what was happening. In the model, I had three main variables. The workers' share of output, which is effectively an income distribution measure, the employment rate, and the ratio of debt to GDP. Looking at those three factors, what happened over time in the way towards a crisis was the fluctuations in unemployment and workers' share of output diminished over time. So you had declining cycles. But in the background, the ratio of debt to GDP was rising on a, 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 a ratcheting up over time, a series of, of, of booms and busts, but generally tending to rise exponentially compared to its starting point. And at the end of the paper, I, I just noted this tendency for declining volatility in employment and income distribution, and then rising volatility leading to a breakdown later. And I made what I regarded then as a rather hyperbolic statement of saying that the chaotic dynamics of this, mo of this model should warn us against regarding any period of relative tranquility in a capitalist economy as anything other than a lull before the storm. Well, in fact, uh, what my model in a very stylized way captured was what neoclassical economists called the Great Moderation, but the model then gave way to what they're now calling the Great Contraction. So in that sense, in a, in a hypothetical way, I predicted the potential crisis we're going through now back in 1995. Why has the Cassandra Steve Keen been largely ignored? Because I'm a Cassandra. It's, 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 it's the fate of, uh, of people who warn about unsustainable trends in human society to be ignored until after they're proven right. This is the whole basis of the story of Cassandra, of course. And is, what I'm doing is, is a bit like... Annoying, is this an annoying job? Annoying? Uh, yeah, but I'll, I'll, yeah, I, I'd only get frustrated by it if I wasn't expecting it. Yeah. And um, yeah. because you know, because I just know this human human tendency to to go on a unsustainable trend until it's too late, uh, and then it breaks after the event. Anybody who can see it coming beforehand just tends to be ignored. Are you afraid that we repeat this now? I don't think humanity. Well, humanity will. I think will change. Fairly radically, in the environmental crisis, we're also wading through at the same time as we're going through this financial crisis, actually bite in a very big way. So if you look mm -hmm. at the global warming phenomenon and you look at what's happening with peak oil, then yeah. at some point when they bite, uh, it'll be such a catastrophic effect on humanity, so dire and with such global consequences for us as a species that I think after that event, we will survive. I'm, I'm confident humanity will continue on. But I think those who do survive will be so scarred by the experience that it will become something that means we always believe in future. We have to think systemically and be, be very careful about what might be unsustainable trends and not to let our human tendency to get euphoric about a particular direction in society blind us to what's unsustainable about that direction. Uh, now that you have mentioned it, What does Professor for Economics and Finance think about uh, peak oil and its consequences? Well, peak oil is its a very simple concept. This is why I find it remarkable that uh, people don't think about it properly. Uh, we know that oil was created by past biological processes on the planet, and there's no increase in the amount of oil in anything like a human, or even a, even a human social timescale of five or 10,000 years, let alone a human lifetime. So we start with a certain amount of oil, 
before we started to exploit it back in the 18, roughly 18, 1880s, 1890s. At some point, we will drive the oil down to the stage where it's not non-economic to get the oil out of the ground, but non-engineering economic to get it out. And what I mean by that, I'm expressing it poorly. But at a certain point, the amount of energy needed to remove the oil from the ground will be greater than the energy in the oil we actually retrieve. That's the zero point. Not when you have no oil left on the planet, but when the amount of energy you need to get it out means that you get a, a net zero energy return from actually getting it out of the ground. At that point, there's no point digging uh, out anymore. So if you connect those two points, the light, you can reckon by a straight line, of course. But the reality is, of course, we started to exploit oil very slowly. Then it became absolutely permeated through our industrial system. And now, of course, we're talking over computers. These computers contain large amounts of essential hydro hydrocarbons as part of their components. So oil is everywhere. It isn't just in our petrol tanks. So we're therefore exploiting it at a, at a very, very high level. But ultimately, we're tapering towards that zero point. So at some stage, we start to get towards the point where we can't get any more energy out of oil. We'll taper off and it will go flatlining again. We connect the two and you get what's called a sigmoid curve, like a, and a backwards S. If you then look at the rate of change of that curve, that tells you how fast we're getting oil out of the ground, how fast we're actually using it. And that, the integral of the, the differential of that curve looks like a pimple. It goes up and then it goes down, looks more like a Gaussian distribution, that sort of thing. The very tip of that is called peak oil. That's all yeah. peak oil is about. It's saying that point has to occur somewhere. Now, empirically, it appears that it occurred sometime between 2005 and perhaps 2015. And from that point on, inexorably, we're going to be able to get less oil out of the ground. If we accelerate at any stage by faster mining techniques or other things like that, we'll just make the point of downturn more rapid as well. So yeah. inevitably, we're losing the capacity to base our industry upon oil. And economists don't realise the extent to which late capitalism has been built upon cheap oil. Now, once that, that is no longer there, and energy is not cheap, and energy is hard to re retrieve, the productivity of the capitalist system, or any social system whatsoever, will decline at the time. So that's what I think about it. But of course, I know that I'm very rare by having any concept of it amongst economists. Well, this will have huge consequences uh, for the whole growth model and therefore the survival of the financial system. Absolutely, right? yeah. Because again, the financial system has been... Uh, so many trends in capitalism assume other trends. And one thing we've seen in the financial sector is expanding wealth forever. But it's an essential source of wealth, and this is one thing which... I emphasize with my students as much as I possibly can. You can only make a profit if we produce a physical surplus. You can only get a monetary profit out of a capitalist system. If you have a system where a large, where that, that gap between your inputs and outputs is predicated upon cheap energy, as we know oil provides, uh, then if that starts to run out, your physical capacity for a surplus will decline, and the monetary value of your profit, of your surplus will also fall. So. The, the, the profit being made by the financial sector is not a genuine profit. It's an extraction. They're putting a financial charge on the actual profitability of the rest of industry. And when that charge was a small charge it, and there was lots of energy in the ground, it didn't particularly matter. Now that it's become a very large charge courtesy of the growth in debt and we're also simultaneously running out of energy, that's the second reason why this parasitic behavior by the financial sector cannot continue. One thing that I um, recognized when I read your work was that you work with the theories of Hyman Minsky. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, did he help you to foresee the crisis? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I, I've been a critic of conventional economic theory since I was an undergraduate student back in 1971, a long, long time ago. Being a critic, of course, you get exposed to not just neoclassical thought, but Marxian thought, Austrian thought, a whole range of different critiques and praises of capitalism. And none of them really gelled with me overall. I read Marx, for example, in great detail, read a fair bit of the Austrians, found myself dissatisfied with their various ideas about where capitalism would go in the future. It didn't seem to ring true. And taking the Marxian side in particular, one tendency of of Marxist economists is to believe capitalism will suffer a a crisis of uh, underconsumption. So they believe capitalism will tend to have uh, more productive capacity than it can manage to consume, and therefore it will tend to slump into a depression. And that's a common attitude. Marxist critics of capitalism, or they think the capacity to produce a profit will fall, etc., etc. None of those really rang true to me at all. Minsky, on the other hand, argued that the fundamental instability in capitalism is upwards. So the tendency, tendency to turn tranquil economic circumstances into a speculative boom is the fundamental instability of capitalism. And I thought that was brilliant. That, to me, captured the real cyclical financial dynamics of capitalism. And I then built a model of Minsky's views uh, by adding that onto a cyclical model of the economy to begin with, which was first devised by Richard Goodwin, but in fact put into practice a a non-labor theory of value, I better hasten to add, a non-labor theory of value cyclical model in Marx in, in volume one, chapter 25 of Capital. And I thought that cycle that Marx described was the inherent cycle in capitalism over the squabbles between capitalists and workers over the distribution of income. And by taking that and adding in Minsky's ideas about euphoric tendencies to investment by capitalists and adding in the existence of a financial sector that provided the money that enabled that those euphoric expectations to be put into place, I had a model of Minsky. And uh, without, without doubt, without that uh, seeing Minsky's views and, and seeing how in such a rich way they combined the wisdom of the best of the Austrians, who was Schumpeter, uh, the best mm-hmm. of Keynes, which is not ISLM, obviously, but the ideas about expectations and uncertainty, Irving Fisher on the debt deflation explanation for the Great Depression, uh, and, and then the wisdom of Marx as well, bringing all those together, I thought that was the, 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 the pinnacle of the process that economics should be going through, which is to synthesize the great works and produce a great understanding of capitalism. I thought Minsky was the first person to do that. So you think um, economists should therefore pay more attention to the work of Minsky? Absolutely. And maybe also what is called the Minsky moment? Yeah. I mean, I think it's, I'm saying it's not so much the Minsky moment as the Minsky millennia, because this is going to last a lot longer than a moment. But yes. But what, what, what is meant with this Minsky moment? What it means is a, a, a turning point where everything suddenly goes in the opposite direction, a breaking point. And you, what you have is a economy which is in a boom, but the boom is getting more and more frenetic and rising levels of apparent profitability are occurring. But behind that rising profitability, you actually have what Minsky called Ponzi financiers, who are people who borrow money to buy assets in a rising market. They pay more money, they borrow more money to buy the asset than they can actually service out of the cash flows from the asset. So they have an inherent need to borrow more money. Otherwise, they are, they are already insolvent. If they borrow more money, they can pretend not to be by paying off previous debts with later with more borrowed money later. But they're always hoping to make a profit by selling off the, uh, the asset at a higher price. And the borrowing process is actually driving the price up. So you have what engineers call a positive feedback loop between 
rising asset prices and accelerating levels of debt. Now, all positive feedback processes ultimately break down. And the point of breakdown in this particular one is that when you drive asset prices up that high, the amount of debt you have to take on at some point to continue the process is so great that either the borrower balks or the bank balks at lending. And as soon as they do that, that ends the upward spiral in asset prices and then sets exactly the same positive feedback process going in reverse. So you have a fall in asset prices, which causes people to want to get out of debt, which causes asset prices to fall more. So that pinch point where you go from accelerating debt and rising asset prices to decelerating debt and plunging asset prices, that to me is a Minsky moment. As you are very well aware of, there's a study to a specific problem of the crisis. No one saw this coming, written in 2009 by Dirk Besema. Mm -hmm. With regards to this, a very influential opinion maker here in Germany, Hans-Olaf Henkel, stated exactly this in the past, that no one has foreseen the financial crisis, that he laughs himself to death whenever someone claims it was foreseen, and that it was caused by starry-eyed idealism of politicians in Washington. What's your reaction to this? Huh. That is a classic statement of somebody who, whose theoretical foundations meant he could never himself see this coming, saying nobody else could either. And the only way that could be true would be if the crisis was caused by what you might call an exogenous shock, something outside the economy itself that economists don't take account of in their models and therefore can't be accused of missing it when, when it occurs and they don't see it coming. So he's saying there's an exogenous shock and his particular nomination of the exogenous shock is the political behaviour of, uh, of politicians in Washington. That points out that the deficiency in that man's thinking, the fact that he laughs at saying we couldn't have predicted it. What he's saying effectively also is there is no deterministic causal function behind this. It's just something extraneous like what politicians did. That's not true. There is something endogenous. It's the level of private debt growing faster than income. And the reason it couldn't be seen by people like himself was his economic framework told him to ignore what turns out to be the most important thing in capitalism. Yeah, but isn't it also when he says no one saw this coming, um, a smoke and mirror? Oh, yeah. Related to, it, those, related yeah, to it, those who it, saw it. Yeah, it's a way of diverting responsibility from themselves, saying, oh, nobody could have seen this coming, therefore we can't be accused for the fact that we didn't see it coming. I'm sorry. The form of economic analysis that neoclassical economists spent the last 40 or 50 years suppressing, which approaches from the Austrian school at one extreme to the Marxist at the other, and certainly Minsky in the middle, uh, they spent their time suppressing this approach to economic thought, not publishing papers by people like myself in the, in the uh, leading journals, not accepting you unless you use neoclassical concepts in theory, driving those the ideas out of academic uh, discourse and certainly meaning that policymakers didn't get a chance to listen to them. Uh, they paid a major responsibility for the fact that these views didn't get heard in the public before the crisis actually occurred. And now they're trying to excuse themselves by saying, well, nobody could have seen it anyway. We were trying to publish articles on this basis. I'm talking even in general about non-orthodox economists and being refused by the neoclassical gatekeepers of these journals. So they definitely bear a responsibility. And you're right, they're trying to divert attention by saying, well, nobody could have seen it coming. Yeah, but Mr. Henkel knew someone to blame. And this was because he said that the crisis was caused because the red lining practice in the U.S. was abolished. Isn't this a bit too much? It's too simplistic. I mean, certainly uh, irresponsible borrowing, um, lending got worse over time, but it was endemic in the American system anyway. 
And if you simply looked at the level of debt to GDP, you could see that something was very dangerous was going on. And ignoring, the only way you could not see that is by ignoring that particular indicator. So his, what, all that really happened was the transition from slightly irresponsible lending to far more irresponsible lending. The legislators and politicians are proving those changes. But the, the debt crisis was still there inherently because if you go back to 1987, for example, when we had the first stock market crash, the level of debt to GDP back then was already approaching the levels of the Great Depression. By 1995-96, it had passed those levels and was still climbing. So yeah. any time in the last 15 years, we could have said, hang on, this level of debt's too high, we have to stop this behaviour at this point now. Even if we'd done it back then, we still would have had a mini depression. The only difference is this crisis is far worse. Yeah. Now, it is not so easy to rob a factory. You can get, you know, things can fall off the back of a truck, so to speak, but it's much, much easier to police that and much, much harder to make large amounts of money out of theft of commodities. But theft of money uh, is very easy. And, of course, banks are put in a position of judiciary responsibility towards the rest of society when they're given the capacity to create debt and therefore create money. And that uh, requires them to behave in the most responsible of fashions. But, of course, the way society develops over time, the most reckless of people get allowed to run banks. And, of course, fraudulent behaviour is only a step away from that particular uh, opportunity. So it then means that what happens ends up being worse than what I'd predict in my models because on top of uh, irresponsible behaviour, you get fraud, fraudulent behaviour and money that's supposed to be there is not there. Uh, assets that are supposed to be backed by real uh, or financial assets that are supposed to be backed by real assets aren't backed by those assets. Multiple ownership claims exist. Outright stealing occurs. Um, and that, of course, means that the shock that the system ultimately feels is far worse. And, of course, it's allowed to continue because we don't actually prosecute that behaviour. The thing which Bill, Bill Black can hold his head high for the fantastic work he did when he was uh, responsible for cleaning up the savings and loans mess when he sent lots and lots of fraudulent people to jail. And his, his successes these days have done absolutely nothing by comparison to what Bill did back then with a far less extreme instance of fraudulent behaviour than we've seen during the global financial crisis. But it is deepening the crisis that the criminal aspect of it isn't punished. Yeah, that's right. If you, if you actually gave, if some of these people spent you know, their time life behind bars rather than on the Cayman Islands, uh, then we might finally get a, a strong barrier to the sort of behaviour, at least for a while, uh, because that experience gets seared into the minds of others who might consider uh, in, indulging on a career of fraud later. But if you actually reward them by rescuing them, as we're tending to do right now, and punish the people who were by, innocent bystanders in the whole crisis, the, the, the people who are you know, on public, public pensions or um, low-paid jobs dependent upon state welfare, as they are in, in Greece and so on, um, you're rewarding fraudulent behaviour. You've been told being honest and being poor uh, is not sensible. Be, be dishonest and rich. That's the last message we want to send to society, but that's the one we are sending right now. And this will have repercussions on the political landscape and societies. Well, ultimately, it does because a large part of why we had the, the horrors of the Second World War were those same attitudes towards the financiers who caused the, the uh, crisis of the Great Depression. So if we continue down this path, I have no doubt that at some stage there'll be right-wing 
uh, normally right-wing, so maybe in some cases left-wing, but normally right-wing political military coups in Europe. And politicians who express surprise about it will have nobody to blame them for themselves because they, they punish the, the masses and the masses will then be quite uh, willing to be led astray by a demagogue. And this is exactly how Hitler got into power. We're letting it all happen again. And you think that uh, austerity measures aren't really the way to go? Austerity is making it worse. Austerity is a very simplistic uh, mindset that says, oh, well, we're in debt, we should save money and pay the debt off. If you've got debt and you start saving and your income remains the same, then you have more money to pay your debt down with. But if you're at a collective system and everybody tries to do it, then you can actually increase the amount you're saving. What you're doing also by doing that, you're slowing down the circulation of money. You're therefore slowing down the rate of economic growth. And what will then happen is the level of output is likely to fall in money nominal terms, but the level of debt remains the same. This is what caused the blowout in debt back in the Great Depression. It wasn't caused by austerity back then. It was caused by liquidation. But what we're doing is, is repeating the same mistake by saying, let's slow down the rate of circulation of money. Let's reduce the amount of money in the economy and let's slow it down its circulation rate. And that'll make things better? No, it won't. It'll make things worse. And what we're seeing is that this cascade of failures coming out of it, what we have to do attack is the actual cause, which is the excessive level of private debt. And to bring that down, don't bring down the GDP. But the austerity measure will bring GDP down while leaving the private debt at the same level, therefore making the crisis worse. We will meet in April, and then we will talk about solutions of the problem. And maybe we will begin with the question why the crisis is ongoing and not nearly solved. But uh, until then, I thank you very much. Thank you, Lars. That was good fun.